When we look at 70% of our workforce is going to be millennials and Gen Zs in two years, I talk a lot about HR technology. And these, especially the Gen Zs, they don't know a world without the internet. They have no idea. And if they can't do it on their phone, oh man, you're dinosaur age. So we need to have, from from a recruitment standpoint, looking at how we're recruiting. If I hand Gen Z papers to fill out, they're going to think I'm crazy. What do you mean? I just want to do it on an app on my phone. And so the alpha generation coming up, clearly the alpha generation, they had phones in their hands when they were not even a year old. So, So this is something that we need to think about our technology. The other thing that the younger generation thinks a lot about that's important in the recruiting is sustainability. Welcome to PCC Local Time. I am your host, Nancy Hess, and I'm excited to continue our six-part conversation series on busting HR myths with Kim Nash. Today, we will talk about the myth of a younger generation that lacks work ethics and the myth that HR is easy. Kim teaches for the Society of Human Resource Management and has a consultancy focused on helping HR professionals grow their career. I am so happy she has joined me today to have this important conversation. This series contains six conversations that build on the central theme of how HR can create value in your organization. If you are interested in learning more, sign up for the PCC newsletter via the link found in the show notes. That is also where you will find out how to connect with Kim. We dive into what it means to have so many generations in the workforce at the same time. So off we go. Think we are in a time period where there is a lot of discussion about the how many generations are actually in the workplace at mm-hmm. the same time right now. So why don't you get us started? Sure. Yeah, there's it's amazing. Some of you probably look at your workplaces and the age of employees. We have employees that are probably close to 80 years old still in the workplace for a variety of different reasons. It could be financial, it could be They're in good health and they just really don't want to retire yet. So they're that silent generation that grew up in the Depression, World War II. So we have that silent generation. Then we get into the baby boomers. And that was a large generation, obviously. They, everybody came back from war and started having children and all of that. So we have that baby boomer generation. And then we get the Gen X. And that's where the birth rates started declining. So Gen X is a smaller generation. And then you get the millennials, which the baby boomers are the parents of the millennials. And so they're a large generation as well. And now the the generation that is coming into the workforce that's in college, graduating from college, these are our Gen Zs. And so each one of these generations, and they've also named the next generation, it's called Alpha. So they're going back to the beginning. And it's really funny because I have a granddaughter that's on that verge of Gen Z and Alpha. But I, as I look at Alphas, I'm like, oh yeah, you're an Alpha. The Alphas haven't entered the job force yet, but they're coming and that's going to be another interesting thing. So right now we're really looking at five generations in the workplace. And it's fascinating because the key is that each generation is shaped by history. And that is what we have to keep in mind, what their culture was like growing up, 
what were the impacts of history. And so really studying that, it's, it is fascinating as we look at that. And how do we, how do we bridge those generations? And really, it's a new way of looking at leadership. And that can be very nuanced. So for instance, on the surface, we may look similar because there's some mimicking that goes on. When we go into a workplace, we may try to look the part. We may dress a certain mm-hmm. way or look at others and say, this is the way I should behave. But mm-hmm. underneath, we see that there is a different way of thinking. I get this, I think, more when I have an opportunity to interview people in the workplace. And I realize they really do have a different viewpoint. And I, I try not to categorize them, but I do believe what you're saying is that, that they are coming in with some different perspectives that are relevant to the way HR is going to perceive and interact. And I suppose that impacts very much, or it should impact the way HR thinks. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. That could impact the recruiting, for instance. Yeah. For one. So I've really been over the last couple months really trying to study this because this is, it's just really fascinating to me. And what triggered, what really triggered this for me and woke me up, I should say, is I was listening to a podcast and the person that was being interviewed on this podcast said by 2025, now right now it's 2023, this is two years, 70% of our workforce will be millennials and Gen Zs. And I'm like, whoa, we need to pay attention here. 70%. And historically, we've joked about the millennials and said, they're not a protected class. And But the millennials, the early millennials are now reaching age 40 and they are in an age protection under the law. And so it's just fascinating. And one of the things that I hear people say is, oh, this younger generation, they don't have a work ethic. No, they do have a work ethic. It's just not the same as your work ethic. Because they saw, like, When I was growing up, people would go to work for a company and they'd stay there from the time they got out of high school or college until they retired. Mm -hmm. That changed along the way and companies were doing layoffs and there really wasn't that loyalty anymore. So you have these managers that say, oh, look at this resume. They're jumping around. They, that's just the way it is. People don't have that loyalty on either side, companies or employees anymore. And so, it's a different, it's a different mindset. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I do think back on, on the generation that I came through with, and there were many ambitious people that went from job to job. So that in itself mm-hmm. is not so different. They had their reasons to do mm-hmm. it. But I think maybe what we're seeing in the millennial is that there's an ease in the sense that I am not wed to this particular organization. This is a mm-hmm. choice that I can make to stay or to go, which is mm-hmm. a little different perhaps than the older generations that have some somewhere a some mental like need to be loyal or to be mm-hmm. uh, steady with the same organization. I don't know. It's a generality, which doesn't apply in all cases, sure. but it is an interesting a contrast to think about. Okay. I, I wanted to bring up this, this idea of quiet quitting. And mm-hmm. I think 
the thought, this quiet quitting is a phrase that is used to describe a movement in which particularly young people are no longer going above and beyond the expectations at work, but mm-hmm. are just more comfortable quitting the job if they don't like it. So mm-hmm. quiet quitting is also this idea of staying in the job, but not actually giving 100%. And this sure. is this is because perhaps they have their priorities set that their family is important or something mm-hmm. else. They're working basically to support a particular life, but not necessarily invested as if their job is the center of their life. Sure. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, I'm not a psychologist or anything like this. This is just my personal observation and just talking to people. But I found it fascinating when I first read about quiet quitting and I'm going, for years and years in HR, we have been talking about work-life balance. This is work-life balance. This is what they're doing. They're saying, you know what? I'm going to have a work-life balance. You pay me to work eight to five. You pay me to work 40 hours a week. That's what I'm going to do because I'm going to have family time. And so I look at it and I say, they're putting the feet to the words and they're saying, for years, we've talked about this work-life balance, but, and so now they're doing it. And so I can't, I'm not necessarily faulting them for that, but the older generation looks at it and says, and this is a problem that I've seen in the older generation, that they identify, their identity is in their job, not in who they are. Mm-hmm. Oh, like I'm the CFO of a company. And if I leave, I have no identity. That's a problem. So I think that's a problem with the older generation. I don't think the younger generation is doing that. They're not putting their identity in their job. They're putting their identity in their family or their personal life, which is probably a good thing. So it's different. It's just different. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I want to just tease out a little bit because The other statistic that I read about was from the Gallup poll talking about the very, very low engagement that's happening in the workplace in this country and all over the world. The numbers are low. It says here that globally, 20 through, according to Gallup, 23% of workers are engaged and it's as high as 33% in the United States, but it's actually like at 13% in Europe. So something is really going on here. That 33%, that's still not where we want it. But I think it's a different phenomenon. I, I would like to say going back to our earlier profession, mine being a little earlier than yours, we have always had issues around engagement. So even in the old days where we slogged it out, we got at our desk at eight mm-hmm. and we didn't leave till six and we were like the troopers. I don't know that it necessarily meant we were more engaged as a whole, as the young people. So I think that is something different. And I think that what we're talking about with the quiet quitting, it's a little disturbing to think about that, that it's it, that their work is maybe something that they don't see as central to their identity because that may feel different from us, but there is potential in it. I think that's what you're pointing out. You're saying, if you put this on its head and think about How can this actually maybe be a key to more engagement? In other words, and I think younger professionals will tell you this, I care about these aspects of my work. I come in, I'm engaged Mm -hmm. in these parts of my work. Mm -hmm. And so I just had a conversation with a colleague this week, and she's actually retired and gone back to the workplace. Okay, she's in her 60s, and she's got an assistant who's very young, like 30-ish. 
Mm-hmm. And, and this assistant was informing her as to what she should be doing because he wasn't going to do it. In other words, mm-hmm. I Trust know me. you gave me this job, but I'm not going to do this part of my job. So mm-hmm. you're going to have to do it. And it was so interesting to her that this 30-ish person thought <laughs> that we're going to tell the boss <laughs> what they were going to do or not do. And, yeah. and she said, I really can't lose them. Yeah. I really can't. And so that's, yeah. So as I'm researching this, some interesting points that have popped for me is number one, and this just really just resonated with me and I'm still trying to grapple it and figure out how we make this happen. When I was a child, we didn't have technology. You just didn't, you didn't have, we didn't have computers. We didn't have devices. And when I would go to my grandparents' house, in fact, they didn't even watch TV. They had a TV, but they never turned it on. So I would go and spend a weekend there. We would never watch TV. We did things together. Like my grandmother taught me how to play checkers or we would, if it was summertime and the corn was in season, we were all picking corn and husking it. And we're doing all of this. And it was multi-generational and we interacted with the generations. And so as I'm researching this, what I'm finding is that generations are not interacting with each other. You're interacting with, because of social media and because of technology, you're interacting with your generation. So now you get into the workforce and we're all like, okay, how do we interact with each other? Because we're not doing that. And I'm like, that Mm. is so true. Thinking about my childhood and how I interacted with my grandparents and how people are, kids are interacting with kids their own age. And I'm like, yeah, so we have to figure out How in our organizations do we start, instead of putting those walls up between, oh, that's a millennial or that stereotyping, that how can we come together and we can be on teams together and things like that? The other point that you made about the employee saying, I'm not going to do that. That's That's not what I do. You need to do that. So as I'm studying, you think about the younger generation and having the devices and the social media, and they are used to commenting on social media about anything. They can do that. So they're bringing that into the workforce. I have that right to comment on it. Uh, and, and those of us that are like, oh my gosh, you never did that before in the workforce, but that's what they're used to on social media. And so how do we manage that? And having those conversations with them, that's it. And so maybe the conversation back to this employee Your colleague could have said, explain to me where that, why you believe that or where that's coming from. Help me understand that instead of just, oh my gosh, (laughs) but but just understanding it. So why are you, why do you believe that's not part of your job Mm -hmm. or just help me understand it? Yeah. Yeah. I made the comment to her. I, what I, I said to her was that have the conversation about why it's important and it has to be done. And also that, that, that you're willing to get some, I, I suspect it's a competency issue that if a person is not comfortable with a particular aspect of a job, they're going to resist it. So the, there may need to be just a clarification of A, sure. why it's important and B, what you're going to do to help them get there. And I, I don't know, the rest is like a mystery. <laughs> Really, in this day with the tight labor market, I think we always have to be strategic about how we're going to find the people to do the critical work. But I also think staying flexible about if Mm -hmm. the work can be done a different way. And if there, this is where I think that 
the wisdom comes in, we make assumptions about the way the work should be done. And if there is somebody that says, I think I can do it this way and it'll work mm-hmm. just as well, or I think I can do this from home and get it more done, that those kinds of suggestions may need to be entertained a little more seriously because we are a different breed. Now, I'll go back to something you said, I think is a key point. The interaction between the generations and one of the fears I have about the remote work that's taking off for some companies that are allowing employees to work remotely completely, if they have not had the in-person interaction in the organization first, or not, that's not built in so that they're spending some time interacting with the people face-to-face, I think that's a concern. I think that's going to lead to actually exploitation, a segmentation of the workforce that will be, they'll never be fully integrated because they'll never have that opportunity to do some of that interaction, which I think needs to be, maybe I could ask whether you agree with this. I'm not sure young people would agree with this, but I think that face-to-face has to have Mm -hmm. some, there must be some component that's face-to-face to really enrich that interaction. Yeah. Someone that does a lot of training, (laughs) I can tell you there is a big difference between doing virtual training and in-person training. It is huge. Mm -hmm. And the way that organizations are operating now, allowing employees to work remote, many are moving away. The face-to-face just can't happen because because of the distance. They're just not going to be able to do that because if I'm working for a company that's based out of Washington, D.C., and now I'm remote, why do I need to live in Washington, D.C.? I can go back home and live at home and work remotely. So I think there is clearly a difference between in-person and on Zoom or Teams. There's clearly a difference in the interaction. And I've seen it. I've seen it. I've experienced it. But like I said, logistics may not allow it. We have to think about how can we I, I, one of the one of the questions I would never would have asked before, but now I ask is, okay, when you have virtual meetings, do you require your cameras to be on? Mm-hmm. Because that's another problem. Sure, we can have virtual meetings, but if I don't require my camera to be on, I may never have ever seen what the face of one of my coworkers looks like. And then companies are like, we don't really require it because, and they give all these reasons. Each company or each organization has to look at that. And so that's a problem if you're not seeing people face-to-face as well. So you can put multi-generation teams together, even if it's remote. And how do you work together in that environment? It's going to take some creative ideas, but I think there's going to have to be periods where you say, you're going to have your cameras on if we're going to be remote. Maybe not every meeting, but there are certain meetings that you're going to have your cameras on. Yeah. I, I like to think about just in the history of work, the, I'm going to think about the creative classes that, that typically mm-hmm. work alone. I think about even the executive classes that spend a lot of time traveling. So they may not be seen as much in person. And I think we have to change some of the assumptions we have about work. My neighbor, for instance, she was working fully remote with Disney as a recruiter. And she just took a position in Arizona. And I was like, oh no, are you going to move? She said, nope, I'm not going to move, but I have to go 
I can't remember if it's three weeks every quarter, something like that, but they're restructuring the organization to work in that they would pay for that travel, Mm -hmm. which may seem to some people that's a whole different issue or problem to have people flying around between workplaces. But this idea that you could actually work into your work structure a way to let people work remotely and then also be integrated during some portion of that time. It's almost like workshopping or conferencing or ways that you are able to up your game, bring bring your challenges to a group and work intensely. So my mind goes all different directions on this, but we just are so stayed in our way that we're going to have these like weekly meetings, for instance, where you get sure. together for an hour. And then, of course, a 15-minute meeting has been in book. Actually, you do sometimes need to go deep. What if you do just one day a month or where you do intense sort of work as groups? We had to change the way we always thought about the structure of work. Yeah, exactly. We do need to change that. And again, when we look at 70% of our workforce is going to be millennials and Gen Zs in two years, I talk a lot about HR technology. And these especially the Gen Zs, they don't know a world without the internet. They have no idea. And if they can't do it on their phone, oh man, you're dinosaur age. So we need to have, from from a recruitment standpoint, looking at how we're recruiting. If I hand Gen Z papers to fill out, they're going to think I'm crazy. What do you mean? I just want to do it on an app on my phone. And so the alpha generation coming up clearly The alpha generation, they had phones in their hands when they were not even a year old. So so this is something that we need to think about our technology. The other thing that the younger generation thinks a lot about that's important in the recruiting is sustainability. Yeah. So you go back to, we're going to jet you all around. They may not like that so much. Exactly. That could be, that could be, they could look at it from climate issues. So that may be another challenge that you have in the organization because this generation was brought up on, I know my grandkids, when they really little, they knew what a recycle bin was. So so thinking about, again, the influences that have been in the younger generation's lives as they've been growing up and how that translates back into the work environment. Yeah. I'd like to go back to Star Trek and do interviews there and say, for a lot of them, they have that big screen and they're interacting back and forth and say, what do you think? Does it make a difference when they come on board or you beam down and actually interact with them? If you watch the show, you have to conclude it. It does. It's important because they always learn something when they actually get together in person. It's different from what's on the big screen. Yeah. And going back to learning, just one thing. How do we bridge this gap between generations? And the challenge I think that organizations have is you have this group, the Gen Xers and the baby boomers that have a ton of institutional knowledge. And if they retire and they leave, all that institutional knowledge is gone. Yeah. And then you have this younger generation that's coming in. It's very tech savvy. So how do we, if we can integrate them on teams, 
in a team environment, whether it's virtual or whether it's in person, being able to say, hey, you bring this to the team. And so we want you to share your institutional knowledge, but you bring this to the team from a technology standpoint. How can we improve our processes? When I was working in an office corporate a couple of years ago, there, I'm not great on Excel. It's all self-taught. And so I knew there was something I wanted to do something. I knew I could do it. I just didn't know how to do it. So I sent an email out to some of the, the younger generations. Hey, can anybody help me do this? I had three people in my office. They mm. were like excited to be able to show me that. Mm. So again, I think each generation brings something to the table and that's valuable and that we can all learn from. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And do you see in your experience that the older experienced workers are open to some of these new ideas? Is your general sense that's happening or do you think that's something we need to work on? I think it, I think we need to, we need to work on it because again, I hear, oh, this younger generation, they don't have a good work ethic. No, or they don't have a work ethic. There's the closed-minded and being able to show that, yeah, I know they expect to be They've been here six months and they want to be the leader of the organization. I get that. They have high aspirations. They want to grow. They want to develop. They're not very patient. I get all of that, but it, it's about listening to them. And again, their ideas may not be, you may, they may have these ideas and they may be really off the wall. But if we ask questions and say, help me to understand why, you're, why you see it that way. And, make, and help them to feel a part of the organization. They may come around and say, yeah, you're right. We're probably not there yet. And that's probably not a great idea. But at least we just didn't tell them no and, oh, dismiss them. I think, I, I think that they bring a great perspective that we need to listen to and then talk through it. But it's getting that, the, I hate to say, the baby boomers, Gen X, we were pretty much you have to pay your dues. You don't have a right to speak until you've been here six months. You have no credibility. And we have to move, we have to move away from that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a terrific challenge when I think about it, because I think some of the younger professionals do have a very high ideal in terms of what they want to see happen. And they're feeling mm -hmm. like it's going to take forever to sure. realize this because yeah. we're not having, our voices are just not being heard. And so it's going to be very interesting for HR as this shapes mm -hmm. out. But I think having those conversations in-house with between the generations, just actually designing some conversations between mm -hmm. generations may be a really interesting way to, to develop some relationships. And I love what you said about bridging either through mentoring or through very intentional kind of work challenges to have younger professionals working with some of the older professionals on a different relational basis. So mm -hmm. it's not one way, it's actually mm -hmm. two way. And it may take some opening of the mind. I know sometimes I tend to fall into a mentoring relationship. You work with somebody, you just want to give them advice. There has to be <laughs> some more parameters around that, like a no advice zone. In the right. workplace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the term that I've read about is reverse mentor. 
And that's where, so you have your mentor, which is typically someone that has more experience mentoring a younger individual or a less experienced individual. And then you have reverse mentor. This is where the younger generation can come in and provide a different perspective, whether it's improving technology skills or whatever that might look like. Uh, But it's almost like a two-way type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. I'm thinking about that now. So often we hear, oh, we've tried that before, or let me tell you why that won't work. Mm -hmm. And so having some of these sort of ground rules when you come into that space, things that you, you cannot say and that you have to just suspend judgment. Um, but I do think that there is truly some assumptions that we're going to have to shift as a whole. And HR, that's going to be a tough role because they're in the crosshairs. They're saying, I'm hearing that in order for us to really improve the quality of the recruitment and the organization culture, we're going to have to open the door to some different or changing assumptions about the way work might look. And you can have some of the more experienced and maybe senior people saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going that way. And it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah. I just wrote down this term just popped into my head that I think going forward from an HR perspective, we're going to need to be bridge builders. That's right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So that may mean that for us, we need to get our mindset right. And we need to look at it from being a bridge builder and setting that example. Yeah. And I think it's a skill. What that looks like is, is practicing sus- suspending judgment, being curious, being willing to invite conversations and being a convener, being able to convene a, whether it's a work related, we're going to, we're going to sit down as a work group on this particular issue, or um, if you've got a senior person saying, this person doesn't have the right work ethic for this job, and we're going to have to have that conversation. And I guess willingness to be uncomfortable. So the skill is a bridge builder, the willingness to stay neutral, be comfortable with discomforting conversations, just being open to possibilities possibilities that we could do things a different way, essentially preserving the core, really understanding what it is at core that we want to preserve and what it is exactly that we want to progress in the organization. And that's really a leadership, sure, a leadership thing. And I think HR has to be a partner to that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As our, as we look at our vision, what is our vision? What do we want to be? We want to be the best, whatever. There's not just one path to get there. There's different ways that we can get there and different perspectives bring those different ways that we can get there. And so we need to find the best way. Yeah. And I think, you know, that this leads into our next conversation. We'll wrap this up here. And the next conversation is going to be about that, the path to professionalism in this field. And I think this conversation has really informed, to a large extent, what the challenge is going forward for HR. So I think we've touched on a lot of great topics in this episode and the previous ones. And our final episode it will be about that path to professionalism. You and I are going to try 
to bring together some HR pros and have some deeper discussions around these issues, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. Yeah. So the next episode I titled, this is a myth buster, is HR is easy. Anyone can do it. Great. (laughs) I think we busted that myth already. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And I know you're going to really share some of the resources that you're familiar with. And of course, you have done a lot of training in this area. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you. And I've got my own thoughts as well as what people can do inside the organization to really grow the profession. And uh, so I think it's a real combination of the the hard, like more formal learning and some of the informal cross-networked learning with other pros. So I look forward to it. Yeah, awesome. Okay, we'll see you soon. Hey, everyone, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a few seconds with the next conversation in our Busting the HR Myths series. So in this final conversation of Busting HR Myth series, Kim Nash talks with me about the path to professionalism. She titled this conversation, HR is easy, anyone can do it, which I think is perfect, but also nuanced. HR pros need to bring their skills to the table, and this conversation gets into the different ways that might happen. I begin by asking Kim about the expectations of HR today and the path to deliver on those expectations? So that's a great question. And what is the path? And it's fascinating because, as I've mentioned, I've had over 30 years experience in HR. And where we started was a lot of, it was a lot of administrative stuff. It was an administrative role. And I think for many, I don't know, I don't know if many is the right word or some is the right word, leaders, managers, that's what they continue to think HR is. It's an administrative role because, okay, we fill out employment paperwork when someone's hired, we get them enrolled in benefits. And so that's the limited view of HR. So I think a lot of times that's one of the things that they think of. The other thing is just, oh, it's about compliance, making sure that we're doing everything that we should be from an employment standpoint, from a compliance perspective. So we have this, there's this perception out there, I think, with managers, with some managers, that's what HR is, especially if they've never worked in an organization that had a true HR partner. I think a lot of that's what it is. It's this preconceived idea that, okay, you get people signed up and you keep personnel files and things like that. So we have that perspective that we need to overcome. And we titled this, I titled this session, Oh, HR is easy. Anybody can do it. Because I think a lot, there's just people out there that think that's what HR is. It's just administrative. So people who are administrative assistants or maybe worked in the accounting department get thrust into HR because, oh, just fill out this paperwork. And that's how they get started. Yeah, I think that's right. And oftentimes, I see it linked with finance. Do you Mm -hmm. see that with your organization? Yeah. Yep. So a lot of times the HR person in the organization is reporting to the CFO or it is part of finance because 
we're enrolling people in benefits and benefits is money. When you look at salaries and benefits, that's the largest part of your operating budget. And so, yeah, it comes down to finance a lot of times. And so we see a lot of HR reporting into finance. Do you think that works well in a structure? Do you, let me ask it this way. Can it work well? It can work well. And I reported in one company I worked for, I did report to the CFO and it worked very well in the fact that it depends on what the CFO's role is in the organization. If the CFO is very strategic in nature and is looking at the organization as a whole, that works well. The ideal thing is if we had the ideal, it would be that the HR should report into the CEO. That's where the ideal is. But again, it really depends on the CFO or the COO. Sometimes it reports to a CO, but the ideal is to report to the CEO. That would be, if I had a wish list, that's where I would have H every HR person report to. Yeah. I do find some interesting, shall we say, issues that come up when both the finance and HR report to the CEO. There does require a really good relationship between the HR and the finance in order to work as a team with the CEO and keep everybody in the loop. I don't know if you have any particular thoughts about what is it that makes it work when the HR and the finance are not together? So they clearly, they have to be business partners. And from an HR perspective, one of the things that I find as I'm working with HR professionals is a lot of times HR professionals will say, I didn't go into accounting because I don't like numbers. The reality of it is, as an HR professional, you need to understand finance. You need to understand it. If you're going to be successful and you're going to work well with the CFO, you need to understand finance. It doesn't matter if you're in a for-profit, not-for-profit government. If there's no money, you can't do anything. So you have to understand how to read financial statements. That's key. And understand how the finance affects the organization. And so understanding the CFO's perspective, the CEO, obviously, the leader of the organization is concerned about finance too. So if I want to go and present a business case, I have to be able to speak their language, the finance language, the CEO's language. What is the mission? What is, what is our direction? How is this initiative that I, as the HR person, want to put forward? How does that impact finance, impact our mission? So I have to be able to speak their language. So that is key to being yeah. successful in that role. I know from the early years, <clears throat> when I was in graduate school, the word on the street, and I think this is still true, is the best salaries come with the compensation skills. And that's an entry into understanding finance. If you're having that dialogue back and forth and you understand the compensation structure and how that, I remember one time I worked with an HR director, I just thought he was amazing because he knew, he knew the budget so well and he knew the compensation so well that the elected body would say, what if we did X, Y, Z? We did this increase in January, then we did this kind of performance bump mid-year. And this guy could figure out almost on his feet how that would impact the overall budget for salaries. And that's an amazing feat when you have a large organization. Right. It's a very systematic way of thinking about pay that only comes 
when you are also given that authority and also that you're relied upon to really do that kind of thinking and work more closely that whether it's your board or whether it's your CEO, but it's very good skill to know and probably is more often not shared by the finance director. So in, in local government, I think we see compensation held fairly tightly at manager finance level. And I think that for those who are in an HR role, they may be very instrumental in bringing information to the table. Here's what the market data is. Here's the sort of trends in the pay internally. So I, I think about them as having the sort of foundational understanding of compensation. Mm -hmm. Sure. And that's a great point because if you go in to advocate, we need to pay our employees a dollar an hour raise. Okay. <clears throat> that's just not, oh, we're going to multiply $1 times 40 hours a week times 52 weeks out of the year. That's not just it. You have payroll taxes that are on top of that. You have overtime goes up. You have other benefit costs that may increase like matching to retirement. If you have life insurance, that rate's going to go up. So there's a lot of different things. And typically what organizations will do is they might put a multiplier and they say, okay, we multiply salaries times 1.5 to figure out all the all-in costs. But it's not just a simple dollar an hour equals $40 a week. That's not true. So you're right. You have to understand how that impacts the budget. How's that going to impact other employees? when you raise salary or whatever, how does that impact the other positions, the internal equity in the organization? Yeah. I'd like to <clears throat> switch gears just a little bit here. You and I both work in the consulting fields, and maybe we could talk about our paths that we took in order to get to this position. Yeah. Yeah, great. So when I started my career, ironically enough, I started in the accounting field. That's where I started. I loved this is going to sound crazy because HR is not like this. I love the fact that I could sit down and, I, and debits and credits equaled. And I could say, okay, this works. And I really enjoyed that. And so what happened was I was working in, I was actually working for Coca-Cola at a distribution site here in central PA. And I was doing some, I was doing the, I was on the accounting side. Coca-Cola restructured and they moved a lot of their roles to a regional in outside of, I think it was outside of Annapolis, Maryland. So a lot of people in the plant in administration lost their jobs. They were eliminated. Because of the role that I had in accounting, I had to be there on site. So all the plant HR stuff fell on my lap. I knew nothing about HR. How do you file a worker's comp claim? Who do I call? When somebody gets hurt, what's the OSHA 300 log? All of the stuff, I had no idea. And I basically learned it on the job. And what I realized was I really enjoyed doing that when a new hire would come in and sitting down with them and helping them to get all their paperwork filled out, helping them navigate benefits and things like that. I'm like, wow, I really like this. So that's how I decided to pursue my career, that I was going to move into HR and I went back to school. I, did, I got a degree in business that wasn't specifically to HR, but I got a business degree and then I landed a job with a small company that needed an HR person and they took a chance on me. And so I became their director of HR. They put me on the leadership team. That was a great learning opportunity. 
But the thing that that I see today is a lot of times people just expect that it's going to be handed to them. I worked really hard. I had to go out and find the professional development. I was a department of one. I didn't have a HR mentor. And I had to go out and I had to find, okay, how can I learn HR? Where do I learn this? What courses can I take? And how can I do better? And so I landed on, I became a member of SHRM, the national, it's actually an international organization now. I became a member of Society for Human Resource Management. I found a local chapter and that was really helpful. Again, having community was really helpful to me to advance in my profession. And I got certified and I went on to get my master's degree with the concentration in HR. But it, I couldn't just sit back and wait for somebody to to tell me what to do. I had to take the initiative. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful story. I think a lot of people can relate to that. That you were out, you were searching for that opportunity to get some professional, both the community and just that sort of. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was confidence to know that you were on the right path and that there were some standards that you were following, some professional standards. That was so important to me as well. I started out early on with the, actually the, it's the world of work now, but it had a different name in the beginning. So I was trying to master all of the compensation methods. I had come out of a actually a graduate degree. By the way, let me just say in your story, I love that you went to business school. Like that's a perfect combination. I think anyone out there they might find that there is a really good opportunity to study business. And then on top of that, add your certification. I think that's a great combination to get started in the field because you really do, as you pointed out, need to be able to dialogue with those who are in the organization and trying to, both from a regulatory standpoint, HR is helpful in guiding policy and from the pay standpoint and understanding their world. So mine was just a little different and I, (laughs) but it's important because this may be another path for a lot of people. I studied psychology. So I was coming at it from Mm -hmm. thinking about organizations, thinking about people, but I didn't really know about the world of HR. I ended up one night, I was, I had traveled that summer with my girlfriend to Europe. I was very young. I'd graduated college. I wasn't sure exactly. I was trying to get into grad school, but I wasn't sure what I, I was trying to get into a psychology graduate degree. But anyway, I took a waitress job at the Harbor in Baltimore and the lights went out one night. It was an ice storm and I was stuck. I was working the coat room that night and I was stuck in the coat room. And this guy was leaning on the rail, like on the, over the coat room. We had, we're there for two hours with the power, the security, but he needs to stay put because it was a security issue around the Harbor. And so he was a professor at Lafayette College and in psychology. And he started asking me a bunch of questions. And he said, he said, I think you should look into this field of human resources. I wrote it down. I had never heard of it. I said, human resources. And he gave me all of this information about where to check it out. And so I just like after that switched my focus to HR and I it went through the Management, Labor, and Human Resources program at Ohio State University, which was a great program. And that gave me an into a consulting firm where, as most people will tell you, when you start working at a consulting firm, you get paid peanuts, but great experience. <laughs> so 
Hi, I learned a lot about labor relations, was able to, through the labor relations lens, see how important HR was, which is another, that's another aspect of HR. A lot of people come up through unions. You understand a lot when you study contracts, why job descriptions are important and yep. all of the repercussions of certain benefits on, on, on pay outcomes. So I think there are a number of interesting paths to the HR field. For me, I'm going to just say probably benefits were least interesting, but that's because okay. I never really studied them. I found them to be a bit, and still do, opaque. Yeah, no, clearly. But I want to go back. It's interesting that you mentioned psychology because a couple of years ago, it's probably more than a couple, but several years ago, a colleague of mine said, hey, my niece just graduated with a degree in HR. And she's looking to get into the field. Would you sit down and talk with her? And I said, sure. I sat down with her and I get this question all the time from people. They'll say, hey, can you give them some tips on how to get into HR? Sure. So I was asking her about her college experience. And she so she have a, you have a degree in HR. So tell me about the classes that you took. It was HR was in the psychology department of the college. And I said, oh, so yeah, I had two HR classes and I said, I'm going to tell you something and you're not going to know what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> if you want to be in, if you want to be successful in HR, you need to go back to school and you need to take some business classes. I think that school, and I'm not going to name the school. I'm hoping they changed their program by now, but I'm not going to name the school. It was in Pennsylvania. And I was just really, I thought well, that's interesting that they put HR in psychology. I get it because we do have to deal with people. But we are, we want to be a business partner. And if I'm going to be a business partner, I need to know under, I need to understand business. Yeah. So I felt bad for her that she just spent all that money on college. And now I'm telling her, you need to go back and you need to take some accounting courses. You need to take management classes. Yeah. When I took it at Ohio State, it was in the business school. So it was, okay. it was, it was not in the psychology department, which really tore at me because I was like, I really want to study psychology. But what I really got turned on by in the business school is they were doing learning and development. It wasn't like the highest valued sector of the business school. I think it's got much higher status now. Sure. But at the time they were exploring sort of the organization dynamics. I love that. So the organization sure. study that it wasn't psychology, but it was a really close cousin. Mm -hmm. In addition to the business classes, I was really sure. learning about how to structure learning experiences and do some of the other. Oh, and labor economics. I thought labor economics was fantastic. It really helps me to understand why market studies are just more an art than a science and that sort of thing. So I want just so people, as we're talking about our college experience, and I think one of the things that I want to say here is if there's people that are listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I don't have a degree, do I need to go back to school and get a degree? I would say no, you don't have to. I think organizations are looking more at experience. They're looking more at, I know people in the HR field that don't have an HR degree. Yeah, they might have a degree, but it's in something totally outside of HR, like science or biochemistry or whatever. So don't, I, I don't want people to feel like, oh, I'm not going to be successful unless I get a college degree. And that's not true. I think it is important that one of the things, and I've been in HR for 30 years and I learned something new every day. I learned something new every day. It is what I learned in the 1980s isn't relevant 
necessarily today because things are always changing. So I think the first thing that I would suggest is if you want to be in the field of HR, you need to have a growth mindset and you need to be willing to learn and not think that you know everything, but recognize that you do have confidence, you do know things, but be willing and open to learn. And there's a lot of great ways that, that you can learn and you can build confidence in your HR knowledge. I think that's a great point. And I totally agree. I think the certification SHRM and you have to help me the other one, there's HRCI. HRCI are two really good, very thorough programs that you can immerse yourself in. And, and it's still expensive, by the way. That's the one thing I would say. If your employer is paying for it, that's helpful. But mm -hmm. sometimes I'm wondering, you know, like taking classes, college mm -hmm. classes versus the certification route. It's, you know, no. I, I think there that you should check it all out and see which one's, you know, the best fit for you, maybe depending on where you live and what you have access to. But Kim, you are an instructor. So maybe just mm -hmm. something more about how you became an instructor. And sure. listening, you need to know this is a, you're a great resource. You're in the central Pennsylvania area. And so talk about that a little bit, maybe even the getting ready for certification. I think mm -hmm. we've had some questions asked of us, like, sure. you, is there tutoring? Is there coaching? Sure. Is, What's the best way to, to prepare for the certification exam? How did you become an instructor? So again, this goes back to community. So I was a member of a local HR chapter. I had, I, I just studied on my own and took the certification exam. I was like, I was shocked that I passed it, but I studied on my own and I got the certification. There was a, a class. Now this is probably back in 2000, 2001. So it was very different back then. You didn't have online learning. It was in the classroom. And Villanova, who I still teach with today, one of the schools I still teach with, they had a class in the central Pennsylvania area that our chapter, our local SHRM chapter, worked sponsored with Villanova. And there was a gentleman in our chapter that was teaching that class. And his career was taking him somewhere else and he wasn't going to be able to teach the class anymore. And he asked me, would you be interested? And I'm like, sure. And so I started teaching that class in 2000, 2001 timeframe and absolutely loved it because I have a teaching degree also. So I have accounting, teaching, HR. Wow. And so I have a teaching degree because I thought I was going to teach business. So that's what I wanted to do. And so I said, I would love to do that. So I got connected with Villanova and that's how I started. And it was back in the day, the way that we taught the class was the overhead projector and I had mountains of slides that I would do. Now it's totally different, but so I continue to teach with Villanova. That's one of the SHRM educational partners. I teach with others and I'm an instructor with SHRM when I go to their headquarters and teach classes as well. But the interesting thing about the SHRM certification, the reason that I love the certification is and I was having this conversation with someone just the other day who didn't, who took the exam and didn't pass. It's not an easy exam and nor should it be because if it was easy, then everybody could do it and it wouldn't have meaning. So it does take some studying. You're not just going to say, oh, I've been in HR for 30 years and I can go and take the exam. No, you need to study. So I was having this conversation and I said, some people are just really good test takers and some people are not good test takers. So just because you pass the exam doesn't mean you're going to be a great HR professional. Or if you didn't pass the exam, you're not going to be a great HR professional. What 
to me, what's important is A, it shows that you took the time and you invested in your career. You sat for the exam, you pass it. Then you have to do continuing ed credits and you have to recertify every three years. That's the part that I like because, again, it goes back to that growth mindset that we're going to continue to learn in HR. We don't just take the class, the test, and that's it. We're done. You have to do continuing ed credits. And that way we stay relevant and we stay up to date. So that's the thing that I love about it. But it is really hard to pass it if you don't participate, again, in community or in some type of a program, because the way that the exam is written, it's a different thought process than, and you have to think about things a little differently. And so that's what we do. We do practice questions. We talk about content. We share stories. We network. And it's, you get so much more out of the class. I just finished up a class at Sherm last week, two weeks ago. And the groups, they come together and they are now joining, they're putting together a Facebook group right now so that they can stay in contact with each other. And so they're going to continue to do that. I have people that were in my classes 20 years ago that are still friends. It's such a great networking opportunity. That's great. I think this is a good time to say that what you and I have talked about doing, what we'd like to do in follow-up to these conversations we've had is to invite in those who are working in the HR area, in particular with local government. And we're imagining a mix of those who are certified mm -hmm. or not certified or thinking about it. So you could be very new or you could be very experienced. But I'm going to put in the show notes a link to our Pioneering Change Community Newsletter, which is really more broadly for managers. Managers are also welcome to be part of these conversations. But we really wanted to bring in some of the HR folks to see where they are at and that the best way to keep abreast of when we have these conversations, we are going to set some dates up to host these conversations and invite people in. And hopefully they'll let us know where some of their particular needs are, what they would like to, if we have some more conversations, what they'd like to talk about, perhaps they can join us in some conversations, but we're mm -hmm. trying to bring to attention the the need for professionalism in the HR, mm -hmm. particularly in the local government. I think a lot of people are are just being met with all kinds of challenges today. <laughs> and some expectations of managers from their HR people. And I hear this. There is, they really do need a partner. They need to not have some of these issues on their plate. They need for the HR. And that, in order for that to happen, there needs to be some better understanding of of the expectations and also making sure that your HR staff has the ability to meet those needs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it is a, a two things. Number one, you have the leadership has to recognize the value that HR can bring to the organization. And so I think that's what we want to do is we want to promote that and we want to help them understand here's what HR can do to partner with you and then help to develop in many of these organizations, I would imagine that the HR person is just a department of one to give that person support in their growth, professional development, to get them. There is nothing better than having a community of people that that you can bounce ideas off of, you can learn from. There's just I just can't even emphasize how important that is. Yeah. And there's so many different strengths just in the course of this conversation. 
you covered you just your early interest in accounting, which gave you a very good foothold into the world of HR. Whereas my interest, more on the psychology end with the org- organization development and learning, that's really what got me in. And then the rest was really, it just unfolds. And everybody has their different strengths, but you can build on whatever it is that is your strength and your central interest. But to be aware that it is a pretty broad field and you really do have to like numbers and people. I guess that's the feature of the field. Yes. Yeah. And you have to understand. We do. I do a lot with just understanding people and what motivates them and being able to talk to your target audience. So, you know, I'm going to have a different conversation with someone that's boots on the ground than I am with my CFO. And being able to work across the organization, having the confidence to be able to say, to a management team, this is what we need to do. There's this policy direction that requires us to have very consistent pay practices. We cannot be making arbitrary kinds of promotional decisions that are going to open us up. To be able to say that with confidence, Mm -hmm. it takes, I think, even just a community behind you to say, am I thinking through this correctly? This is what I think is happening in our organization, but I'd like to be able to Mm -hmm. say more clearly what it Mm -hmm. is that we need to do. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of managers have some excellent background in from their their field of study. So frequently it's public administration, but many of them don't at the same time. So it's a real, it's really important for managers to also do what they can do. I, I really admire those who have taken the time to take a few courses in human resources and they are out there. Hats off to them. And, and if if we could, with these conversations, just as you said, bring more attention to the importance of leadership in this area and that there is an ability to see what it is that HR can bring to the organization, bring to the table mm-hmm. to help facilitate that. That would be the best case scenario for an organization. Yeah, I would agree. Thanks, Kim. Great talking to you. And this has been a wonderful series of conversations. Yeah. Forward to getting it out there. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.